Hi, everyone. We're back at the Home Birth Experience Podcast. Christina and I are here today on this warm, sunny, beautiful day. Right, Christina? Hi, everybody. It is the day of the much-anticipated podcast with Dr. Stuart Fishbein out in Los Angeles, California. We're going to post Dr. Stu's contact information, Instagram, Facebook, website, on our comments so definitely check him out and give him kudos for showing up and educating us and giving us all sorts of amazing things on this podcast today so here we go let's jump in Mm -hmm. hi everyone and welcome to the home birth experience i am here today with my co-host christina maddox and our special guest today dr stuart fishbein out of los angeles california hi dr stu Hi, Julia. Hi, Christina. Hi. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. Good. Awesome. How's your weather out there in California? Uh, it's great. It's, it's California. It's great. <laughs> Every, everybody, everybody should be out uh, swimming in the ocean and walking on the dry sand, but uh, unfortunately, uh, we have crazy leaders out here, so slowly but surely, people are revolting, and and we're getting we're getting our rights back, but it's uh, the weather's always good out here. Yeah, unlike Ohio, we have a little mix of rain and, and clouds, but you guys are pretty lucky out there. Yeah, I would tell you that if, if we had if we had the government we have right now and, and we were North Dakota, no one would live here. <laughs> okay. California is blessed by having, you know, one of the best climates in the world and so people are gonna live here even even if it's a crazy state. So Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, every state has its issues. There's no question about it. Yeah. But weather is not one of ours. Right. So, Stu, could you kind of tell the audience um, what you do and how you got to this point? Well, yeah, I I can summarize because otherwise it's a really long story. But um, I am pretty much the only home birth obstetrician in Southern California. I collaborate with midwives. Um, I started out with the traditional training in obstetrics and gynecology. I did my residency at Cedars-Sinai in Los Angeles, came out thinking I was one of the brightest uh, bulbs in the in the box and thinking that I knew everything about uh, women's health and obstetrics when clearly I knew almost nothing other than women who were sick or women who had problems and that I was excellent. And, I think most of my colleagues still are that way. Um, we don't really learn much about normal birthing and uh, and uh, pregnancy as wellness as opposed to pregnancy as illness. And so when I came out, I started a practice. It was a different era back then. You didn't come out and get a salary and go to work for somebody. You came out and you started your own practice. And so I was hustling all over the place and covering five different emergency rooms and three free clinics and building my practice, and I was approached by some local midwives and asked to be their transport physician, or in those days they called a backup physician, and I said, sure. And I didn't do it because I thought midwifery was a good idea or that home birth was a good idea. I did it because I was a mercenary, and I was looking to make money, and it was the best thing that could have happened to me back then because I began to see a different way of doing things. I began to uh, talk to the midwives when they were transferring their patients in, and seeing that their clients were quite well-educated and well-informed, probably more so than my own, and that there was a whole different way of approaching things. Uh, I began to go to some of their meetings. I was asked to speak or, or just listen. And so gradually over the years, I began to change, and I eventually collaborated with midwives in a, in a hospital-based midwifery practice. Uh, we had really good results for 15 years, but we were really never accepted in the community, and we were always sort of ostracized and picked on. Um, by the establishment, and eventually it came to a head. And in 2010, I left the hospital-based world, and I've been doing home birthing now for 10 years. And I've been free to do the things that the hospital was a limit was limiting me on, such as taking care of women with hypertension or diabetes or breaches or twins, certainly VBAC, um, that sort of thing. Where in the hospital, these things are all restricted, or uh, there's so many. Policies or procedures that have to be done with them that the chance of success is so much less So, you know, I really I really enjoy my career I think the only downside is that I'm the only one doing it which makes me on call all the time Um, But so that's what I do and I published a few papers and I'm not really an academician But I think it's important to get the data out there 
decision making and and respecting women's autonomy and uh, and the choices that they make and and true informed consent. And so, along with people like Kristen Piscucci and and uh, Hermine Hayes Klein and a bunch of other people, we get out there and we promote uh, what they, we think is the right way to practice uh, obstetrics. That's amazing. So when I talked to you a couple of weeks ago, you mentioned uh, midwives inviting you to home births, and your initial thought was, oh, God, I don't have, you know, the suction on the wall and the oxygen on the wall. I don't have all these emergency things that I have in the hospital accessible to me. And you said, if the first 10 births I attended didn't go as well as they did, I don't know that I would have made the switch. So... How did that feel? That first home birth that you went to was there? Was there fear? No, I still remember her first name's Heidi, and I still remember it. Uh, no, because I was with a midwife who I trusted implicitly, who I'd been backing her for years. And you know, I never go. To, I never. I never go to a home birth purposely without a midwife. I mean, uh, midwives have talents that I don't have, and I could do things that they don't. So together, the collaboration seems to be a really great way. Of practicing, but um, yeah, no, I had, had complete confidence in the midwife to know what to do. I mean, I didn't have any equipment at that time or anything. Uh, you know, I came with her stuff, and eventually, I went and had to buy all my own stuff and make my own, you know, suitcases and gear, get my gear together and all that. But you know, the first ones I went to, and they were all beautiful, and they some were primips and some were multips, and uh, of course, I will tell all the listeners that. This may sound like a funny way of saying it, but but primips, which are mothers that have never had a baby before, and multips, which are women that have already had a vaginal delivery, um, they're actually two different species. Sounds funny to say that, but they are. They really and are. The statistics are different. The success rates are different. The confidence is different. The, the, the speed of labor is different. The, the chance of tearing is different. Everything about them is different. And... Um, so I was lucky that a lot of them were, they just went, they were beautiful. They were on the, first one was on the living room floor. I still remember. That's awesome. Yeah. She was leaning on the couch and it was on the living room floor. Um, and, uh, you know, I, and, and then like midwives, I, I began to keep a logbook. So I have a logbook of every home birth I've ever attended, which is really interesting because I don't think any OB keeps a logbook of the births they attend at the hospital. I don't think they even can remember all the births they attend at the hospital. It's just, they go in, they catch the baby, they write the orders, they go home. And it's just a, a, it's just a statistic. Whereas for me, my memory isn't as great as it used to be anymore, but I can always look back and see things. And, and I remember the names of, of, of almost all the babies that I've delivered. Um, sometimes I need a refresher on that. But, but um, yeah, so it's a whole different way of, of doing it. And it's a joyful way of dealing with birth. And the idea that something is going to go terribly wrong really doesn't enter into it because two things. One, we cherry pick our clients. I mean, we're already picking people who have the right mental uh, framework to have a home birth and also are health, generally healthy. And when, then we don't meddle with labor. We don't meddle with Mother Nature. So we don't end up with this so-called cascade of interventions that leads to fetal distress and sudden need for a you know, vacuum or a C-section. We don't see that at home because we're not messing with those sorts of things. The things that we see are uh, the reasons that women go to the hospital from home birth are because their labor peters out or they get tired, that sort of thing. It's not generally because of fetal distress or anything weird like that. Right. That's been my experience in home birth as well. And you saying that these births just went so smooth, I noted in your article, Home Birth with an Obstetrician, a series of 135 out-of-hospital births, I was surprised to read that your intake consult with a client and your average prenatal visit is an hour, which you don't get with a doctor. And I feel in my practice that really changes the outcome. The fact that I spend so much time at each prenatal visit with them, getting to build that relationship and understand where they're at. Um, did you always do that when you were practicing in the hospital or is this a, a new thing? <laughs> Oh, it was entirely changing the model by which I practice. It was changing the midwifery model of care, which is a preventative model as opposed to a treatment model. And and yet, no, when there's so many reasons why midwives can do what they do and the way they do it. But a lot of it has to do with financial reimbursement. 
in the medical world, when you're taking insurance or if you take Medi-Cal or in some states, your state it's Medicaid, um, you have to do volume. You just have to. You can't survive with your overhead and do one patient an hour or two patients an hour. You, you won't survive. So you have to do volume. And when you do volume, you can't possibly give the same attention and, and uh, service to these people. And when you don't give the same attention and service to these people, you don't build the same sort of relationship with them. And then so people say, well, how do you do that? And how do you practice without malpractice insurance? Aren't you afraid of being sued? And the answer is no. I mean, you know, maybe we're crazy. Maybe home birth people are crazy. I don't think so. I think that we develop relationships with our people. And again, the, the idea that things are going to go wrong suddenly because of something that we did that was negligent and that the woman wasn't informed and didn't have, you know, a say, what we call, um, uh, you know, just, she can make her own decisions. She takes part in her decision-making process as opposed to sort of skewing your counseling to funnel them down a path that you want them to go. They, they get to choose, you know, uh, right or left, which fork in the road they want to go. And then we try to support those choices. When you do that and respect each other, the likelihood of a, you know, a bad outcome is, is rare and the likelihood of being sued for a bad outcome is rare. And, um, when you spend all this time preparing people and you can deal with stress reduction and nutrition and sleep and relationships and, you know, who do you want at your birth and how can we make it a better experience for you? And, and then we can prepare them for the immediate postpartum period and what breastfeeding is like in the first couple of weeks dealing with that sort of thing. When, you know, in the hospital model, you deliver a baby, the doctor sees you on the postpartum day number one, you go home and the follow up with the doctors in six weeks. That's ridiculous. I mean, that, it is ridiculous. but that's the norm, and, and that's how I was trained, and that, and that's how most residents are being trained right now. Is that what goes on on day four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, all the way to day forty-two doesn't really matter. Um, and it's such a abandoned. critical time. It's such a critical time, and 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 they're not. First of all, they're not prepared for it because they haven't spoken about it very much in their prenatal care, and secondly, they they don't have people that do that. Where in the in my model, I work with a midwife, and I'll go to the first prenatal visit, and then the, usually the second, third postpartum, postpartum visits, and usually the second and third postpartum visit are done by the midwife because it's mostly midwife stuff. I don't have training in latching and breastfeeding, that sort of thing. They, they never, they don't train the obstetricians to do that because the hospital model looks at the baby as a uh, uh, separate entity that belongs to the pediatric department. So in obstetric training, they don't teach generally mother-baby as a unit. You know, once the baby's in the bassinet, it belongs to the pediatric department. It's not, it's not my concern anymore. And so the system is all backwards. I mean, from the financial aspects, the financial rewards, to the restrictions and things that are put on to who's making the decisions, uh, to how they treat a woman in labor, you know, restricting their movement, restricting their diet, uh, interrupting them all the time, all the things that are anti-mammalian. Everything about the hospital model is is backwards, and yet it's the dominant model, and they're fighting to keep it that way. Yeah, it's just astonishing how backwards it is and how our culture just falls in line with it. It's always surprising to me that women just, they go, okay, all right, I'll surrender all my empowerment to the white coat gods, and, and that's that, and they don't even know that there are choices sometimes. It's really sad that there's that mindset and I don't know how, you know, to, to get the word out other than doing podcasts like this, you know, as part of my mission with starting this podcast was let's give something different for women to hear, to let them know that they have choice. Yeah, I would, I would agree with you a hundred percent that the, um, that the, that the system is really um, screwed up and that people, you know, people have what's called social conditioning. They're just conditioned to believe a certain way. And the long habit of thinking that way makes it seem like it's right, even if it's wrong. And then people cling to that because it's all they know. I mean, I think about my colleagues, and I think about, you know, the C-section rate in the United States, here's an example, was 5% 50 years ago in 1970. <clears throat> it's a little over 30% now. So it's basically one-third of all women are getting a cesarean section. The World Health Organization, which clearly not everybody is is a big fan of right now. But they think that the C-section rate in the in a developed country should be 10 to 15%. So let's just let's just argue and say that's right. That's 15%, okay? 
Well, that means half of all the C-sections being done in the United States are unnecessary. Okay, well, there's about 1.3 to 1.4 million cesarean sections done in the United States every year, which means there's about 700,000 that are unnecessary. If we were doing 700,000 unnecessary knee surgeries or gallbladder surgeries or heart surgeries, there would be a public outcry going up to the heavens. But, it, but it's crickets is what you hear. And the oddest thing about that, Julia, is that no doctor goes home at night and says to their spouse, hey, honey, guess what? I did, I did two unnecessary C-sections today. Right. All right. So every C-section that a doctor does, they feel is necessary, yet we know half are unnecessary. So there's a cognitive dissonance that has to apply there because the alternative is unthinkable, that doctors are purposely doing things to harm women or doing things that aren't necessary, and no doctor thinks that way. So it's, again, we get into this, this cognitive dissonance, the social conditioning, What's called, uh, another another term could be confirmation bias. You tend to cherry pick the data that supports your position, and you ignore the data that doesn't. If if a doctor that's been practicing thirty years had to learn that the way he's been practicing or she's been practicing has led to a lot of um, unnecessary things being done, well, that's unthinkable to that person because that person down deep inside is a good person. So you have to have this sort of attitude toward home birth that, well, these people are crazy. Because that's an easy cognitive dissonance way of dismissing an idea that you are uncomfortable with. All right? We in the home birthing world, we know that the hospital-based world has a value. All right? And we have to experience it because we take transports and we, we know we experience that, that sort of thing. But the hospital-based world, they, their only experience with the home birth world is either annoyance or a tragedy. All right? They got to take care of somebody who has all these crazy demands. They don't want this. They don't want that. And they're already coming from home anyway. So that they already have this preconceived notion that they have an attitude, even though these people are really great and smart and sweet and, and are grateful to be coming to the hospital. Or they've had the occasional, to use the term, train wreck that comes in from home, which does happen. But that happens in the hospital all the time. So um, it's not it's not surprising, but that's what that's their exposure to it. And so that's the way they feel about it. And uh, getting them to spend some time in residency training with a home birth midwife would, would solve a lot of issues. Augustine Colebrook, who many of your listeners maybe know who she is, um, she talks about each, each stakeholder in the, in the obstetric world being in a, their own silo. And we need to break the silos. We need to have the, the maternal fetal medicine doctors and the midwives and the OBs and the family practice doctors and the chiropractors and so all sort of being integrated, having an integrated residency program where they all work together. And then you'll get better outcomes. I mean, you look at countries like England, the Netherlands, they, they have better outcomes, they have lower C-section rates, but then partly because midwifery is integrated fully into their system. Yeah, I agree. The integration is crucial. Also, the education um, of the residents, along with, you know, dispelling the fear that they may have. You know, your breach paper um, talks about the term breach trial and ACOG's response to that after finding out that it was had a lot of flaws in it. And ACOG then in 2016 making a statement that women's autonomy should be respected, but then still we have many states that won't even allow vaginal breach in the hospital. And your paper states that you had 84% vaginal delivery for breach birth at home or out of the hospital birth. So this is a skill that should be taught and this fear and this myth that it's not okay and it's not safe, it, it needs to go away. Yeah, um, the, the, the freaky thing about breach is that the medical establishment is lobbying against breach birth in general and specifically home breach. And the only ones that are carrying the water for breach delivery anymore are midwives. You know, I teach a breach course. Rick Sapriz and David Hayes teach with, have their Breach Without Borders group, and they teach breach courses. And the only people that ever attend these courses... Um, 
99% are going to are midwives. We almost never get a resident or a medical student, and certainly not a practicing physician. So they're not interested in learning, yet they don't want to allow midwives to do it either. So ACOG is sort of schizophrenic because they say that breach, vaginal breach delivery properly selected in a hospital setting with a skilled practitioner is a reasonable choice. But then they go on to say, since there are no skilled practitioners, most women will end up with a cesarean section. But yet they're not encouraging residency programs to retrain their young doctors to know how to do this skill. So, yes, it's a skill. Yes, it should be allowed. Yes, it's allowed is that terrible word. I hate that word. But, yes, it should be um, offered. Um, we don't think people should do it at home, but we're not going to teach it for in the hospital. Okay, great. Uh, how, do, how, do you, how do you put that together? Right. And then there are people, people like you that are willing to do it in the hospital, but then you get all kinds of uh, resistance from the powers that be in the hospital. So even if we have a, a brave handful of residents that are willing to go through the training and learn how to do this, the actual fact of them being able to do it or having the courage to do it in the hospital, I don't know that in our culture today we'd even be able to get there. Yeah, and, and, and the way the hospitals treat these women, like VBACs, is that they're about ready to explode at any time. And when a mammal is trying to labor in a situation where everybody around them is nervous, uh, the chance of success gets less. My, 80, my 84%, it's actually 80%, of two, two of the transfers were delivered vaginally. That's not going to happen pretty much anywhere in the country, and even, and even that physician is retired now. So it's about 80%. But my success rate with multips, multiparous women, is 100%. It's incredible. And with primips, with primips it's about, with, in the paper, it was 76%, but it's about 72 73% now. So even 7 out of 10 women who are first-time moms with a breech baby that meets the selection criteria um, are going to be successful, and yet all these women are being sectioned. And what I would consider to be malpractice is any multiparous woman who gets gets a section from a breach that's in proper position because the success rate of those women is going to be astronomically high if they just let them labor and if they have anybody on staff that had the skill. So to section a multip with twins or a multip with a breach, I will say it out, 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 you know, straight out front, it's, it's, malpractice, it's negligent, it's malpractice. Yeah. Um, and yet it's the standard of care. Yeah. And the other thing is repeat cesarean sections, the medical community stopping VBACs. And, and to your point of, you know, a woman is in labor in a hospital and she's got all these people who are nervous and they're sticking hands up her vagina and, and intervening in different ways. I mean, how do you expect a woman to have a successful VBAC in a hospital when she's being treated this way? Um, and oh, in your, you know, one of your that, papers, it said oh, that ahead. you, one of your papers said that the uterine rupture, which is what everybody is fearful of, was zero percent. Well, I, well, yeah, I mean, I don't have big enough numbers to be statistically significant, but I can go through a reasonable, easy way for someone to assess the risk of, of uterine rupture. And it's not one of those wheels that called the VBAC calculator. What that, I believe, is designed for is to help people who don't want women to have a VBAC to, to find a way to make them not have a VBAC, all right? But the quoted risk in the literature of the scars separating, and uterine rupture is a, is a lousy word because it conjures up the image of a tire maybe exploding on the freeway in a truck, which I've never seen, by the way. Have anybody ever seen a tire explode on the freeway? No. You always see the rubber. You always see the tires exploded on the freeway, but I've never seen what happened. So I, really, I wonder if, that's, if they really do explode or what happens, but that's... That's the image I have in my head. And my brain goes off on a tangent sometimes trying to figure out, well, okay, so the, the, there's rubber all over the road. What happened to that truck? Where is it? Um, but nonetheless, I guess that's why they have 18 wheels. So they, they, <laughs> they, can, they can spare a few, I guess, on, on the road. Uh, anyway, it's more of the, of the scar beginning to separate. Right? And the quoted rate in the literature is about 1 in 200 for somebody with one previous low transfer cesarean section. All right? So people will always say, well, it's 1 in 200, and then and that's like half of 1%, and that's really scary. But that's not the whole story, because only between 5 to 16% of those scar distances will result in a baby that's catastrophically injured. And when I say catastrophic, I mean that. It's either going to die or have severe brain damage. So it is a serious consequence not to be taken lightly. And that 
that risk is 5 to 16%, depending on which paper. So if you take 16%, that's about 1 in 6. So the, the actual risk of a, of a baby having suffering a bad injury from a VBAC is 1 in 6 times 1 in 200, or 1 in 1,200. And if you take the 5%, that's 1 in 20. So it's 1 in 1,200 to 1 in 4,000, somewhere in that range. And so, this. so if you give people that information, some people are still going to say, yep, you know what, I want a repeat C-section. And other people are going to say, one in a thousand, that's a 99.9 plus percent chance that it's not going to happen. And it really depends on how you people are given statistics. And that could get us into a conversation about relative risk and actual risk, which I won't go into right now. I'll stick with feedback. But that's what you see. And what they don't tell people is what's the risk of to the baby and the mother from the second C-section, let alone the first C-section, which, for, you know, for breach and stuff like that, but from the second C-section. And so, especially, and, and one of the questions that's almost never asked, because I ask women this question when they come in to see me for a VBAC consult, but it's rare that they ever tell me that their physician asks the same question, and that is, do you want more children after this? Because if a woman wants a third baby or a fourth baby, then if she has a repeat C-section, all she's doing is pushing the risk to, uh, from that little extra risk that she might be taking with a VBAC, and she put and she's putting it on to the third baby because now you have a VBAC after two C-sections, and you have potentially more risk um, to the third baby, and then if you want a fourth baby and all that sort of thing. So, plus it doesn't take into account at any time the woman's psyche and how important is it to her to see if her body will work the way she want, you know, the way God intended, the way she wants it to work, because a woman who has a vaginal delivery has a You've experienced this. I've experienced this. It's very, very, the word empowering is tossed around too much, but it is something that makes perfect sense here. It it means that that they've done it. They are are this person that they've always wanted to be. And some people who end up with cesarean sections wrongly, but I understand it, feel that they have failed. You know, it's sad when that happens. But you've been to an, if you've ever been to an ICANN meeting, yeah, it's the International in, Cesarean yeah, Awareness Network. Yeah. It's a it's a pass the Kleenex box around because oh my gosh, yeah, people I, break down and start crying. Yeah, Christina attended her first VBAC with me in January, and I mean, for me, the word is victorious. When you see that woman get over the hump of fear and realize that okay, I can trust my body and my body's not broken. I'm not broken and this baby's going to come through my vagina and the minute they have that baby in their arms, I mean, how can you not cry? It's just miraculous. Yeah, I mean, it's fun for me too when I when I have a VBAC like that or, or even a breach, when, but a VBAC especially, and they reach a point where you can start to see that they're crowning or they're getting close to crowning and you can look at them and you can say, you know what, you're going to have your VBAC. Yep. And you're and you're going to have it right here in your bed. Yeah. Right right here in your tub. And then you can see the, the, the look of relief on their face, their their partner and because you can tell them. I mean, and for me it's easy because I know that even if they're like at zero station and completely dilated or 1 plus 1, I know that if I had to I could get the baby out because I carry you know, I carry vacuum and I carry forceps and stuff. So for me, I can I I can say that even a little earlier than you might be able to say that. But but it's a it's a great feeling for for me to be able to tell a woman that you've done it. You're going to do it. It's your your minutes away. Yep, it's incredible. So I'd like to make one point. I'd like to make one point though. We always talk about VBAC and twins and breaches sort of in the same breath, and they really are the VBAC and twin a v, a, twins and breaches should be considered a category that requires a certain amount of training and skill. A VBAC should not be lumped in with them because a VBAC is, is essentially the absence of doing anything. It's just a normal, spontaneous vaginal delivery. All right. So we, we need to be careful when we say, you know, VBAC reaching twins because it, it assumes that VBAC is a procedure. It's not a procedure. Breaches, twins, they're sort of, they can be defined as you need to know techniques and it's a procedure. A VBAC is essentially the taking your hands and sitting on them. Yes. Yeah. Ideally, ideally, a breach is that way too. But a breach will tell you whether it needs your hands or not. Whereas, so I just want to make sure that the, your listeners know the difference. 
when people lump them into the same category, they are different. 100%. Yep. So there's something I wanted to touch on. I was kind of thinking about the common questions that I get from clients and common concerns and the one that you talked about in your um, home birth with an obstetrician paper was women being 35 or older, there were no abnormalities or increased risk. And being 38 myself and not having had a child yet, and God willing, hopefully one day I will, I get this a lot from people, you know, especially people that aren't exposed to the the normalcy of birth and the physiology of the woman's body. And, you know, they say, well, aren't you going to freeze your eggs? And aren't you scared you're going to have a Down syndrome baby? And, you know, there's going to be all these complications because you're already 38 and you, even ha- you haven't had a baby yet. So, you know, you you found in your data that there were no abnormalities or increased risk. Why in the medical community do does a woman get labeled high risk if she's over 35? And then, of course, they use the term elderly, which, you know, how we all feel about that. But Okay, a couple things about that. The way, the way I wrote that in the paper was sort of tongue-in-cheek. Um, I wrote that to sort of mock the people that think that 35 is this risk thing. So the way I said it, which the way you read it, was that we found that we were well, look at this. Amazing. We found no abnormalities <laughs> in women over 35 years old. Okay. So um, I, I have a whole theory about that. But there are, there are, there are people in my profession who want to try to make everything high risk. Now they're labeling primips as being high risk. Okay. Wow. So, and I will tell you that, the, that in my own experience, when, you, when a woman is, start to be, is called high risk by her physician, for whatever reason, it yep. starts to sink into her head, and then she starts to worry, and she becomes more high risk. All right, let's talk about age thirty-five, though. Where did that come from? Because I also, when I give a, when I give my my talks, my reach, I talk about numbers like 42, 35, 24, 1. These are numbers that are arbitrary. Twenty-four hours of ruptured membranes is an arbitrary number. No data that bacteria know twenty-four hours is twenty-four hours, or eight or eighteen hours, and there's in forty-two weeks. That's just, you know, why not 41 weeks in five days? Why not 42 weeks in one day? It's just, it, it, they pick these numbers and they make them, uh, and they become sort of policy. Like, like ACOG now approves one minute of delayed cord clamping. Oh, jeez. Okay? Approves. Well, I'm, I'm just saying that, right. that, that that's what they say. But where do they come up with one minute? Like two-thirds, and much of their credit, ACOG admits that two-thirds of their clinical guidelines are consensus opinion. They're not based on science at all. They're what's called level C evidence. And what do you expect from a bunch of scientists who don't like cord clamping or don't like home birthing, I mean, who don't like delayed cord clamping or home birthing, to, to say about it? They're going to say that home birthing is bad, so therefore breach home birthing is really bad. Twin home birthing is really bad. Well, you don't like home birthing at all. And you know what? There is no data on breach or twin home birthing. So you're saying that because you don't you don't like it, and you're and, and twins or breaches make you nervous. Therefore, why would anyone do it at home? But there's but they say it with the authority that makes it seem like there's data. Mm-hmm. But there is no data on home. My breach paper, as as Rick has said in the paper, we said that even though it's small numbers, it's the largest single paper ever published of home breach births by a single practitioner. Yeah, and that was and that was that was forty breaches. Out of 60, the 10 were transferred prior to labor, 10, uh, 10 were transferred in labor, and for, uh, 40 out of 50 delivered vaginally at home. And even though that's a small number and it's too small, to, uh, it's too underpowered to come up with the possible rare complications that can come up, it, it's still the largest number. And yet, authoritarian-wise, ACOG and these other people are saying that, well, you breach birth at home is dangerous. Like, well, okay, where's the data? Right. So back to 35. Where did 35 come from? And 35, if I tell you this, you're going to start to like really get frustrated. People, your listeners are going to get frustrated. 35 came from a period of time before ultrasound. So it came from the 40s and 50s and 60s probably when the risk of Down syndrome, which was calculated to be about 1 in 200 at age 35, was the same as the risk of miscarriage 
from an amniocentesis without ultrasound guidance. Wow. Okay? So that's where, it, that's where the two lines cross. So they arbitrarily <clears throat> made that a number where insurance companies and other people would pay for an amniocentesis. So 35 became this magic <clears throat> magic age. But it makes no diff- makes no sense because even if you, <clears throat> excuse me, because you're comparing apples and oranges, you're comparing the risk of giving birth to a Down's baby with the risk of miscarrying a normal baby, and the two have nothing in common. So why they even used those numbers was baffling to me, but that's how they came up with the age 35. And then with ultrasound guidance, the risk of amniocentesis fell to like 1 in 600, 1 in 700. It, it, it fell much, much less, right? But the age 35 thing has then stuck ever since that as, as the advanced maternal age, elderly primogram, a geriatric pregnancy, okay, when it really has nothing to do with anything. And especially now we have great ways to prenatally detect. I mean, the risks of, of, of trisomies and things like Down syndrome do go up. Right. By how by much? Age, by age, well, by age forty, it's about one in forty, one in sixty, somewhere in that range. But at age thirty-five, it's one in two hundred. Right. So, um, you know, you can do diagnostic testing, but that, but at age thirty-five, woman, once she doesn't have, once she's shown not to have a Down's baby or anything like that, then, you know, is her risk of hypertension greater than it is if you're twenty-five? Yes. Eating that much? Okay. <laughs> And, and if your risk of diabetes, yes, all those things. But if you don't have those things, then to label someone high risk simply because they're 35 is, is something that's culturally done. And it's, we're socially conditioned to just repeat it. And I can tell you that if you ask the doctor why someone who's 36 years old is high risk, they'll tell you all these things that can go wrong, but they won't have any idea what the actual risk is compared to somebody who's 34. All right. They just throw these things out there. We're supposed to be experts, right? But we're not. Because we don't keep up. You learn a way, you learn a way of doing things and you become comfortable with it. And it takes a really big person to admit that, you know what, I've been doing something wrong all these years. We should change the way I counsel people. All right? I don't like breach delivery. I don't have to tell a woman that a breech baby will get its head stuck and die. I can say, you know what, I'm not comfortable with breech delivery, but Dr. Brock over at Cedars does it, or this, there's this crazy guy, Dr. Fishbein, who does them at home. <laughs> why, don't you go, why don't you go have a consult with those guys, all right, and find out more about it and then come back and talk to me? That would be an honest, uh, ethical thing to do. Mm-hmm. But to tell a woman that she can't have a, a, a that vaginal breech is dangerous or that VBAC is dangerous or that, you know, my hospital doesn't support it or I, I'd like to do it, but I, I know that I'll get chewed out on Monday morning. Um, you know, these sorts of things, these are, these, that's not ethical to do it that way. And to make up these numbers like 42 weeks or 35 or one minute of cord clamping or 24 hours of ruptured membranes, you know, um, we have been, you've had clients, I'm sure Julia, that, have ruptured their membranes and they maybe maybe a, a day or two or three have gone by and finally they go into labor. But if you're not, you know, if you're checking their vital signs and you're not doing a vaginal exam on them, there's no urgency to get that baby out within 24 hours. Right. None at all. Right. Yeah. I had a woman in October who had a leak and it was three weeks later that she had a baby. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, people in mainstream medicine would think that that was irresponsible of you absolutely but, but you give people informed consent and decision making and, and uh, they choose that and there is there is data out there to support the fact that you know when we have somebody rupture their membranes at 31 weeks or 29 weeks in the hospital i mean in in, in preterm labor you know we don't necessarily deliver them in 48 hours we may give them steroids and watch them and in 48 hours everything's stable we may just keep them in the hospital i remember keeping women in the hospital for six eight weeks sometimes when they broke their bag of waters at 25 weeks or 26 weeks um and if you can do it then why can't and you're not doing that why can't you do it at 32 weeks or 34 weeks or 36 weeks or 40 weeks i agree 100 percent. i mean they believe i think they believe the default position is that that you intervene and you get pitocin that that's that would be 
the standard, and that's what you should do. And they don't think that there's any downside to doing that. Uh, I, I really believe that. I believe that they they believe that that is the safer route than waiting, even though it may lead to all this cascade of interventions and a high C-section rate. Absolutely. And I'd love to see someone start studying what the effects of ultrasound are, what the effects of Pitocin are, what the effects of epidural are. You know, those things aren't looked at either. And, and they're just put out there as truth and the way to go. And this is a protocol and this is what's best. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I, I agree with you. I think that um, those studies are very hard to do in human subjects uh, in 2020. Uh, the last really good ultrasound studies were done in the in the late 80s, very early 90s in China. And even in China, they're not doing them anymore. Um, so we really don't know. But we all, you know, we just use, com- I, you can use common sense with these things and say, okay, ultrasound has benefits, but it probably has some risk. We don't know what they are. So let's limit ultrasound to as few as possible or as short a period of time as possible or as short exposure as possible. And not do these long ultrasounds where we're taking 3D pictures and, and doing all this stuff just to have fun. And, and, and then bringing people back every three weeks or two weeks, as some doctors do. Uh, because, as I like to say, there's a credit card in situ, which, yeah. which means, if you know what I mean by that, is yep. that uh, you know, doctors get paid fairly poorly for obstetrics. So what do they do? They manufacture reasons to do other testing so they can they can... And look at that's a fault of the system, and, and the doctors are just playing the system. Um, they, you know, and again, they rationalize that. There's, there's definitely uh, some cognitive dissonance going on there because you've you got to know that starting to do non-stress tests at 38 or 39 weeks on a woman because she's 35 years old has no place in medicine, and yet they do it anyway. And they can justify it by saying, hey, you know, she's high risk, and this is how we manage high risk. Uh, did I move? No, there was something on my screen, and I was trying to get rid of it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I've been getting texts as well. Yeah. Um, And that could just, you know, hearing you say that, I think about the whole licensure thing of midwives. And I said to myself, Julia, don't go into that on this podcast. (laughs) But it's the same thing. You know, you and I were discussing how Ohio is pushing to license midwives. And to license CPMs specifically for home birth. And I, from the, from jump street was adamantly opposed, adamantly opposed. But then, you know, there's these little things of, okay, well then I could legally carry Pitocin. Okay. Well I could legally do a um, laceration repair. I could legally give IV fluids. You know, there's, there's these certain things that I'm like, okay. But then again, it's, the people leading the pack that want this are the people like these physicians who are, you know, just getting in line with whatever the, the institution says, and it's a money-making request, really. It's, you know, let's do all these things so that we can get everybody under our thumb and we can make more money. Yeah, it's a path to servitude. Yep. All, all, licensing, all, all licensing. I mean, I understand why pilots need a license. Okay. Um, but I'm also in favor of, of sort of buyer beware. I don't think that hairdressers need a license. I don't think that uh, you need a license to fish. I don't think that you, you know, need a license for your dog. Um, these are ways of making money for, for, for government agencies, and they're a way of regulating things. And so if those the midwives, and again, this is my opinion, and, I, and it, it's just based on my experience, which is, I guess, all I can, you know, all any of us can ask. But I just see that when once the state gets a hold of you for some way, then they can, then they will never let go, and your fees will go up, and your restrictions will go up, and they'll never back off your restrictions. They'll never say, oh, you know, we restricted you too much. Let's let's give you back this the, the choice of doing breaches or the choice of doing feedback. Once they take it away, it's going to be gone, and all it's going to take is some overzealous politician like we have in California in the vaccine issue we have one politician who that he's made it his his uh, life's work to make sure that everybody in California every child in California has gets vaccinated whether it's good for them or not and uh, he's in a position of power and once you let them in a little bit then it, it never gets less it always gets more it's a creeping crud so 
yes, it would be nice for you to be able to take care of your patients and be able to stitch them up or give them medication. Um, I'm not exactly sure why that's practicing medicine anyway. I mean, I mean, mothers give their kids medication all the time. Um, well, and what's you know, interesting is, sorry to interrupt you, in Cincinnati, where I first practiced, we had OB backing up our clients, not the midwives, because we're not licensed. We don't have a collaboration with them. But they backed up our clients, and they wrote a prescription for Pitocin or Methogen or whatever um, anti, anti-hemorrhagic medicine we wanted. And it was written to the client so it could legally be administered at home. And I don't understand why so many physicians are resistant to that type of collaboration because it makes things safer. They don't think so. They don't think you know what you're doing. Because because to them, you're a lesser subset of their profession as opposed to an independent profession. Yeah. Yeah. So you don't have the training that they have, so therefore you can't possibly know what you're doing. And uh, and then there's also probably a bit of the competition thing in there, too. Um, and also, again, some of it is legitimate in that they, they eventually sometimes have to clean up a mess that might happen at home. So yeah. uh, those are the things that get echoed. It's like, it's like if you search airplanes in Google, the first things that will come up will be like the crashes. All right. That's what people, that's what people talk about. That's what people remember. So they'll, you know, all the great births that you have at home, no doctor in the hospital knows they even happened. All right. The 90, the 95 to 99% of births that we have at home, all right. No, no one even knows they happened. The only ones they know that happened are the ones that didn't make it. And so they, get this really skewed view of what's what home birth is like yeah you know i i i I hesitate to use this example but i will um we had a baby once that i got called to put a vacuum on at a birth center and i was about an hour away and i told them that they said well come anyway and by the time i got there she'd been pushing for about three and a half hours or so and the baby's head was showing about this much so i just gave her some fish spine bundle, elbow grease, and got the baby came out right away. And the baby was, need a little bit of, uh, of um, PPV, uh, just a little bit to get it going. But then it was fine. The heart rate was fine. The color was fine. The respiratory rate was fine. But it never had any tone. No tone. Zero. All right. So we called the paramedics. The paramedics came. We watched the baby. Pulse ox, the O2 stats were in the 90s. Uh, the respiratory rate was, everything was fine. The color was fine, but no tone. So in hindsight, there was probably something neurologically wrong with this baby. I don't know what it was and when it happened or whether it was genetic, but there was something neurological. Maybe that's why the baby wouldn't come out because it's hard for a woman to push out, you know, a, a floppy sponge than it is to push out a solid watermelon. <laughs> okay. Right. It's much easier to push out a watermelon. All right. So maybe there, but there was something terribly wrong with this baby. So we finally said to the paramedics, let's take the baby to the hospital. And they took the baby to the hospital. And the mother gets cleaned up, and the mother goes over to the hospital, and she's in the nursery, and she's crying, sitting next to her baby, who's being observed. I mean, it's not on a respirator or anything. It's just being observed and trying to figure out what's going on. She's crying. And then this is not an example of what nurses are, but there was there was a nurse in the NICU that started to shame her about her home birth, okay? Not knowing anything about the fact that this outcome had nothing to do with whether this baby gave, gave birth. There was something wrong with this baby. Just shaming her about the, her choices. And in the midst of her grief, the woman looks at her and she says, you know, there are 15 babies in the NICU here. Where did the other 14 come from? Mm, good for her. Right. The other 14, and we're not talking about 26 weekers here. We're talking about, you know, 10 of the, of the 15 babies were probably term babies born in the hospital that ended up in distress or meconium or whatever and had a problem and they weren't home birth transfers. Okay. But that's considered, see, there's a, there, there's an absolute blanking on it because that that's considered the norm. If a baby has a bad outcome in the hospital, well, we did everything we could. They yeah. don't even believe that it's possible that the way they treated that mother, or whatever led to the bad outcome that yeah. doesn't even enter their, their, their mindset, but a bad outcome at home. Oh my God, that could have been prevented. Yeah. No, I, that's a great story. And I often tell the story of a cord prolapse at home 
you know, got the mom in a knee chest position, got her on a board, put her in the car, drove 45 minutes to the nearest hospital and got there. Of course, the staff, you have to get out. You have to remove your hand from her vagina. Let us do our work. And, and we refused. Absolutely not. Not until this one is being sectioned will I move my hand. So, you know, stuck to our guns, went in the OR, surgeon delivered a healthy baby via C-section. He came out to the waiting room to talk to us after the delivery and said, this is the fourth cord prolapse I've had this month. And this is the first baby to live. And the other three happened in the hospital. You know, and, and not to say that the hospital and physicians aren't wonderful and there aren't great interventions and, and life-saving medical technology, but you know, just it's overused, but yeah, I mean, you can't guarantee it one way or the other. Yeah. And we don't use these examples to tell women why they shouldn't give birth in the hospital. All right. We use these examples of tell women how to empower themselves in the hospital, how to ask for certain things, but, but home birth people are not, I mean, most of us, I mean, there are some, there are some really radical people, but home birth people for the most part are not anti-hospital. Um, whereas hospital people are almost all anti-home birth. So, uh, again, I think it's an ignorance. I think it's a, it's a, it's an, it's the not breaking of the silos. I think that they don't know what we do. I think it would be great for residents in training to spend six weeks to two months with a home birth midwife and for the home birth midwife to spend a month on the hospital labor and delivery ward. And, you know, there, there would be a give and take there. And, and some of the labor things that are done in labor and delivery might alter, change, because the, the home birth midwife might have a few suggestions for, you know, you know, you don't need to have her on her back the whole time. You know, you can let her get up. You can let her like, get on all fours. She can let her get in the water. You don't have to listen to the baby constantly. You don't have to take her blood pressure. If her blood pressure is normal on admission, how often in labor does it actually get abnormal, yet they have a policy that says, you know, that the nurse has to record her blood pressure, what, every 30 minutes or every hour. Mm-hmm. So you have, that little, you have to interrupt her to put that little thing on her arm, and it pumps, or it just pumps up automatically. You know, she may be sleeping or she may be resting, and suddenly their arm gets pumped up. For a blood pressure reading, that means absolutely nothing. means absolutely nothing and can change the trajectory of that birth, you know, by all right, those once, little disturbances. Right. And, once, you know, once they have an epidural, it's slightly different. But then, of course, no one thinks there's anything wrong with giving epidurals. You mentioned that earlier that, you know, I, have, I don't know if you read one of my papers in uh, my blog called Labor is Not a Toothache, but I talk about the difference between pain from a toothache and pain from which the word, you know, when midwives don't like to use the word pain, but it's just for this argument, say, it's not a surge, it's not a wave, okay? Right, it's, <laughs> it's contraction. It's painful. <laughs> it's painful, right? And why, but why is labor painful? And why, you know, and why are we masking the pain of labor? Is there a reason we shouldn't be? And I have a strong, a strong belief that there is a reason we shouldn't be. And yet, you know, epidurals are 80, 90% of women in most of these modern hospitals get epidurals in labor. And everybody thinks it's perfectly safe to do that, that there's no downside to doing that. And I would argue that there's an absolute downside to doing that. So do you want to tell us a little bit? <laughs> <laughs> okay. What time, how are we doing for time? We are five minutes yeah. to one. Yeah. Okay, so I got. I'm gonna have to go in about five, maybe maybe eight minutes or so. Okay. Okay. Uh, okay. Um, okay. Here's my theory. All right. Ask yourself the question, the basic question: Why is labor painful? And people say, "Well, because you're having contractions," but that's not an answer, because it's a biologic thing. Labor is painful in all mammals, and if you believe in evolution. You believe that things that have no value will eventually evolve away, and things that have value will become more prominent or or things like wisdom teeth. Like, we don't need them anymore, and then more and more people are being born now without wisdom teeth. All right? So, it's like that. So, if it's still there and if all mammals have it, you think it would be beneficial for it to disappear because a mammal that's in, in the nature that's moaning or making noise is, is a signal to predators to come find them. So, it'd be ideally, if labor was painless... Then there wouldn't be this moaning or this grunting or this guttural, you know, lionessing sounds that we talk about that a lot of mammals make when they're in labor, right? So it has to serve a purpose. So what could the purpose be? And here's my thought. When a woman has discomfort of any kind, whether you bang your elbow or whether you're having a contraction, 
your brain puts out certain neurotransmitters and hormones, things like cortisol, adrenaline. What does adrenaline do to contractions? Space them out. Okay, it gives it gives them to each contraction. All right, because we know when a, a mammal is approached by a predator, they put out adrenaline. Labor stops. The animal gets up and runs away. So we know what adrenaline does. We have endorphins, which are our own uh, opiates. They help us deal with pain. And of course, we're putting out our own pure oxytocin, all right, which helps us with contractions, but also is our lover bonding hormone. You know, it's sort of our attachment hormone. We're putting all these four hormones to help us deal with the contraction, and then we get this little, you know, waft of uh, these hormones. It helps us get through that contraction. It gives us about three minutes to recover, and then the whole thing starts over again. But at the same time, a woman is contracting. Her baby is also experiencing something it's never experienced before. Right? Its whole world is changing. It's getting squeezed. Its bag of waters is ruptured. Its head is now getting squeezed, or its butt, or whatever position it's in. And it's it's experiencing something that it doesn't know what to do. And every three minutes or so, it's getting a waft of mom's adrenaline, mom's cortisol, mom's endorphins, mom's oxytocin. And so it's like going, okay, I, I'm, uh, these things are helping me, my baby helping my baby and my baby help is being helped by dealing with its stress by getting mom to help it because mother baby is a unit it's designed that way right so every time you have a contraction um, you're helping your baby get through that contraction as much as you're helping yourself give a woman an epidural and what happened she's no longer feeling any discomfort she's laying on her side snoring okay so she's not putting out these these neurotransmitters anymore yet every three minutes Possibly even sooner because now our contractions are spaced out from the epidural. So what do we do? We add pitocin, which is synthetic oxytocin. doesn't have the same characteristics as oxytocin does. And the contractions may be, we want to get, oh, let's get them every two minutes. And so eventually the baby without mom doesn't know how to deal with this stuff and starts, begins to decompensate. And then you see the tachycardia or the, or the D cells and the, and the emergency C-section. It isn't that great. Because we just saved your baby from from disaster that we won't admit that we caused ourselves. All right. So that's my theory about it: is that labor, uh, pain, pain, and labor has to have a purpose because it's still there. Yeah. And every time you mess with Mother Nature, you're screwing up something. Epidurals are a godsend for women that need them. But do 85% of women need them? No. Nope. And, and are they innocuous? And why do we tell women that they're innocuous? It's not because we're mean. It's because we don't even think. We think of labor as a toothache. That's why the title of the piece. When you have a toothache, the only reason you have pain is to tell you your tooth is rotten and you should get it out. All right? There's no other benefit, really, to pain from a toothache. But there is benefit, probably, from pain with, with labor contractions. It's a very simple thing. Yeah, that's awesome. Thanks for explaining that. I hope people take it to heart. I hope people start asking their doctors but of course, the doctors will shake their heads and say, "Well, that's crazy," yeah, because they don't they don't think that way, right? But they should ask their doctor, "Well, why 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 is labor painful?" Yeah, I mean, there's the biblical reason, and so, and there is a you know that may have a factor, but that's all mammals. It's not fair to punish a deer for what Adam and Eve did. You know, it's really right. not fair. But right. but I guess we we you know God was you know, all knowing, so He only knows why He did that. Um, but it's, you know, all mammals are in pain when they have labor. And so there's got to be a benefit to it. And if we only would think like that, we think out of our little box sometimes, we might come up with different ways of doing things. And if we could ever, if I could summarize everything, the whole model needs to change. And unfortunately, I don't see that happening. I see them tightening the grip. I see that when home birth now is a little more popular because of the COVID-19 thing, I see the American Academy of Pediatrics putting out a statement against home birth. And I can guarantee you within the next few months, the same two, uh, the two culprits that always put out anti-home birth papers for ACOG will put out another anti-home birth paper. The pushback will be strong. Mm-hmm. It will. But we will keep doing what we're doing and serving women and giving informed consent and supporting their choices. Right, Dr. Stu? Yeah. No, as long as I can still do it, I will. And I'll continue to practice this way. And I continue to, to try to educate people this way. And I would love it if a few more doctors would with uh, let go of the rock midstream and, and just float downstream and see what's out there because I can tell them that their career will be happier, that you go through all this training, all this medical school and residence and all this eight years of training 
to come out to go to practice where someone who's not practicing is setting up algorithms and policies and protocols for you to follow that you won't be able to do the things that you want to do. You won't be able to individualize your care because if you do, your group or your, or your company will, will call you in on Monday morning and say, you know what? We, we deliver everyone at 41 weeks. You can't tell a woman she can't go past 41 weeks. And if you stick your head up, okay, like the old Japanese proverb, what do you do with the nail that stands up or that stands out? You pound it back in again. So people that stand up in an organization like Kaiser here in Southern California or whatever you have, your big HMOs back in Ohio, um, it's very hard for, for an individual physician to make, make any changes because all they want to do, they, they come out, they, they get beaten out of them. If the system beats them to death. And by the time they come out, they're not prepared to stand up and fight anymore. I know. It's sad. Yeah. So we got, you know, but there, but there is hope because if we can, as, if we can continue to increase the number of people having home birth at some point when it reaches about 3%, 3.5% of people doing it, it will reach critical mass. And then home birth will be part of the conversation, not an outlier. Yeah. And you can see that. You can see that because of the way organized medicine is responding to home birth now. 30 years ago, it, they didn't even mention it. All right. And then home birth became a little more popular. And so the next stage, first you ignore something that, that, that's meaningless. But then when it starts to become a problem, you start to attack it. And that's what's happening now. And eventually you'll have to accept it. And, and the number is about 3 to 4%. We can reach that number. Then, then every time there's a conversation in your state state houses, they will have to include midwifery people in that conversation because there'll be enough of a population that 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 wants it that matters. When it's only one percent, it's easy to to suppress them. Yep, yep. Got to hit the critical mass. Yeah. So keep doing what you're doing, and appreciate you having me on. Yeah, thank you so much for coming and being on the show today. And I can't wait to come out to California and and see you in person and watch what you do. I'm totally pumped. Well, you know, I, I'm in the process sort of, of, of moving part of my life to Utah. So I'm going to keep a presence in Southern California. But, but part of me, again, you can only do this for so long. I've been on call every night for myself for 34 years. Yeah, I know the feeling. And I'm, and, I'm, and I'm like, I love what I do, but I'm sort of tired of, of always being on call. Being on call doesn't mean I'll ever get called, but you just go to bed at night not knowing if you, whether you'll be called. You know what it's like. Oh, so, yeah, yeah I've, I've reached a point where I, I have my health and I want to I wanna try some other things. And so I'm going to continue to teach. I'm going to continue to take certain clients, but I'm going to, you know, I'm probably not going to be doing the same reach and twin thing here like I'm doing in LA in the future because when I have a breach or twin client I have to be available right I can't, I can't go away for the weekend I can't have two glasses of wine <laughs> right um, you know that sort of thing and and, and uh, I, I, yeah so I need younger people to come out and say this is what we want to do and if they want to learn the skill of breach delivery and stuff like that they're going to have to demand it from the residency program Mm-hmm. Young residents should not feel happy about going through a training where they're not learning forceps, breaches, breach extraction, twins, that sort of thing. Because coming out not knowing that stuff doesn't make you a, a really a complete obstetrician. Yeah. Um, and the, the thing that makes my skill, my profession unique are the things they're not really teaching anymore. Yeah. Because, because it doesn't take it doesn't take a four years of training to come out to catch a normal baby or to do a C-section. It really doesn't. Right. Um, but it's, it's a passage. It's a, it's a trial by fire to get through residency program. And by the time people get through it, they're generally pretty beat up. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish more midwives were teaching in, in residency program, but you know, residents are generally taught by maternal fetal medicine specialists who, um, look at all pregnant, all pregnancy as being high risk. And therefore they, they fear, they fear, their fears get pushed on to the residents and they get therefore pushed on to the patients. And women, American women fear birth, not because they would normally fear birth, but because they're surrounded by practitioners who fear birth. Amen. And the, best example, the best example of that is looking at the Amish. Yep. Amish women don't have social media. Amish women don't fear birth. 
they look at it, and they may even know somebody who's passed away in birth, but they, they look at it as a normal part of their life and the life cycle and, and a normal function of their body. Um, so if we could do away with uh, certain social media aspects and, and teach residents a different way of doing things, we might have better outcomes. Because we shouldn't be proud of the outcomes we have. And, and the people running, running academic medicine right now should definitely, definitely be looking at their, to clean their own house and not worried so much about what the 1% are doing. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Okay. All right. Well, on that note, thanks again, Dr. Stu. All right. There we go. See you guys. All right. Bye. Bye. That's all for this week, everyone. Thanks so much for listening. Please leave us a review on iTunes or Spotify and let us know what you think. We really appreciate your support. Tune in next week for another episode of the Home Birth Experience. Until then, stay healthy, y'all. Bye.